You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Barrett? You've seen Charlie Barrett? You're an interesting man, Mr. Barrett. Last of the independents. You want to die for somebody else's money? Half a million? Harold Young, Trace Cruz's bank manager, has estimated that the bandits escaped with less than $2,000. Who are they kidding? Us? It's 10 to 1. This stuff belongs to the mafia. This is gambling money. Skimmed off the top. The mafia kills you. No trial, no judge. They never stop looking for you. Not till you're dead. I'd rather have 10 FBI's after me. One man against the mafia. Bang! This little bank a million miles from nowhere gets hit by four professionals. Now they're going to think that's strange. Why couldn't it be just a coincidence? Because they don't believe in coincidence. Prop dusters don't wave guns. Put that thing away fast. But we're going to get them. I'll never get out of New Mexico. I feel that in my gut. I want to fence off some money. Hot. Burning up. What do you want? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare you. It doesn't mean I won't throw you right out that window if I have to. Sooner or later, you're going to tell me everything you know. So why not save yourself a great deal of pain? Where's Charles Varick? When Charlie Varick runs out of dumb luck... has genius to fall back on. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me today is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also with us today is Mr. Morris Brzezinski. Felix, I lied. It's 12 for us, not 11. Oh, shit, wrong film. This week we're looking at the 1973 crime film from director Don Siegel, Charlie Varick. Loosely based on the novel The Looters by John Reese, the movie stars Walter Matthau as the titular Varick, who, when he robs a backwater bank, accidentally gets embroiled with the mob. We're going to be getting into spoilers galore on this episode, just like we do every week, you know, so don't be surprised about that when we go ahead and spoil the movie. Rosebud, it was the sled. Just take it. Enjoy it. So if you haven't seen Charlie Varick, go out and watch it and then come on back. We will still be here. Now, Heather, when was the first time you saw Charlie Varick and what did you think? The first time I got to see Charlie Varick as a whole entire film in one sitting was um, several weeks ago. But it was a film that has always been on my periphery, and I'd seen – it's something that's one I'd either see like a trailer for or see clips of. And you brought it up to me because we were talking about Andy Robinson. You know, you need to get Andy for the show, and you're like, Charlie Varick. And, and so when I saw the film – for you know, getting to sit down and watch it complete for the first time, it blew my mind. I just, I, I already went into it loving Don Siegel, you know, and, and loving like the cast of just all these great character actors. But the film is just—it's so smart, it's tight, the pacing's perfect. It just—it absolutely blew me away. I thought it was fantastic. 
I think I saw it maybe about five or six years ago for the first time. I was asking a question on the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema Facebook group saying I really needed to expand my knowledge of uh, American crime cinema from the 70s. And, you know, I'd seen a few and I think I might have just come off recording an episode of Paleo Cinema with Terry Frost talking about Night Moves. So it was about then that I said, well, what other films can people recommend to me? And they'd recommended Prime Cut and they'd recommended Laughing Policeman and Friends of Eddie Coyle and Charlie Varick. So after I watched that, you know, pretty much the same reaction that Heather had. Uh, it was just absolutely blew my mind. I'd already been a long-time fan of Walter Matthau and, of course, I'd seen taking a poem one, two, three, you know, number of times. And I, I just sort of love that here was another opportunity for him to do something dramatic. We know more as a comedic actor. and uh, But I just love the pacing of it. Uh, I love the, the music, which I know we'll probably discuss later on in the show. Uh, and I just love the game of cat and mouse that was going on. I just thought it was absolutely a, a perfect film. Yeah, like you, I knew Walter Matthau much more as a comedic actor, at least growing up. You know, the, my folks would watch The Odd Couple or Plaza Suite or some of the other films that he had done. And when I first saw Taking Pelham 1, 2, 3, it blew me away. When I saw The Laughing Policeman, I was also stunned. And this is almost to me like the the third part of a, a a fantastic trilogy of Walter Matthau ass kicker, which is, is not something that I necessarily thought of him ever being capable of doing growing up with him in those other roles. And I just absolutely fell in love with this film. And it is one of those that, yeah, I will shout it from the mountaintops. It's just like Charlie Varick. If you haven't seen Charlie Varick, you have to see this movie. And it's, it's a weird one because from the name, you have no idea what it's going to be about. And then also, it's a nice way that we kind of get introduced into this movie, because if you come in absolutely cold, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen in this film. The way that we kind of even set it up with the pastoral landscapes and just like you expect like a voiceover to come up and be like, it's morning in America, you know, <laughs> just all these beautiful scenes, you know, like the, the, the open landscapes and the guys with the cows and all this kind of stuff. And then we get, you know, the, the small town and this woman driving her, she says it's her husband, but my God, he looks like he's as old as her father and the way that they uh, talk to each other. It seems more like a father-daughter relationship. And when we first see Walter Matthau, he looks ancient in this. He almost looks like he would look in something like Grumpy Old Men or something. And the first time I watched this, I had no idea that anything was going to happen after this. I thought that Walter Matthau was playing an old man in this. And I like that they immediately pull the rug out from under us when we find out that he's not everything that he appears to be in this opening. I think we'll probably get a little bit more into Lalo Schifrin later on, but I think it's his music in that opening credit sequence, as well as the visions that we're seeing of uh, kids mowing the lawn, uh, milking the cows, you know, the, the morning, another day in New Mexico. And Lalo Schifrin is bringing in all this major key orchestration. And in a way, it's not music that I was used to hearing from him, you know, from what I've heard in other films. Uh, but he really, under, you know, Don Siegel must have said something to him. Don't do a dirty Harry for the opening three, four minutes. Just you know, bring bring in something a little bit more cheerful, a little more another day. And really, yeah, as you say, Mike, 
if you hadn't seen this before, if you went in completely cold, knowing nothing about it, just knowing, oh, Walter Matthau's in it, probably going to be a nice, cheery comedy, and then you get anything but. But yeah, I, I attribute a lot of that to uh, Lolo Schifrin as well as the visuals in the uh, opening uh, title credits. Oh, God, that score. I mean, of course, Layla Schifrin's one of the best. And, you know, I absolutely love that's such a great point. And it's it's a brilliant setup from Siegel, too, because it's almost as you get further in the film, you realize just everything that's kind of surface level lovely, like it's small town America. But even in small town America, there's that, you know, things like corruption and vice. And, you know, there's like a pollutant you know, uh, going on. And that's, uh, which is always intriguing because it's, you know, that's life. And the way that we do get the rug pulled out from under us is fantastic. And the way that Charlie Barrett goes in after he has this little spat with his wife and, you know, Oh, you know, my, my ankle is busted. Can I, you know, can my wife just park here and I'll go into the bank goes on in and it's all of this like, Oh, you know, it's an out of state check and blah, 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 blah. And then the way that Andy Robinson and the other robber who we never necessarily get to know, which is also a nice thing that there's this fourth robber who just is murdered almost outright. And we never really get to, to see him, but the way they turn around and it's almost like this, like moment of surprise. Like I swear Andy Robinson's hand is up just like, ta-da. Kind of <laughs> and then it's like, Bam! Just all of a sudden, the movie just kicks into gear, and it doesn't slow down for the longest time. It just goes right into it, and there's the the tension that's going on on the outside, where we get the cops, and they're talking about the license plate, and, you know, oh, this is a stolen car, and we still don't necessarily know what's going on. Like, we're kind of getting a glimmer as far as, like, well, there's something not right here, and again, to your point, Morris, the whole idea of the score, we start to kind of amp up the action as far as the, the music goes and we start getting some quicker cuts on the outside of this but yeah we don't necessarily know exactly what's going on until we get that this is a robbery and then all hell breaks loose and they just put on the gas literally and don't take their foot off of it for a long time oh and god and god bless them for it because that that switch that tonal switch is so oh my it's just handled so beautifully especially because you've got the two sort of like you have the weird images of the guys turning around and like the masks that like Andy Robinson and the fourth guy is wearing are like these like grotesque. Oh my! I mean, how would you describe almost like these weird like puppet, <laughs> like puppety looking masks that are just very. They kind of remind me of the clown masks that the Joker and his gang wear in The Dark Knight. You know? Oh my god, it, that's beautiful. Yeah, that exactly. So these weird masks, but then also I think also the mind game of seeing like Walter Matthau as this like friendly looking, you know, kind of cranky old man. All of a sudden, like he's got a gun. <laughs> he's robbing a bank and you know it it just but i love that like it's you know and it's it's such a tense like oh my god like the pen i had in my hand throughout most of this movie was so chewed upon by the end of everything (laughs) because it was just there's so many things in this movie where you're like oh my god like i love it but shit what's gonna happen it takes maybe about half an hour before you come to this position in the film but the big thing about this film, and I guess a lot of films of that period, is the moral ambiguity of the characters. I mean, like, you know, there was a time, I guess, with the Hayes Code, so pre-1967 or whenever it was that it ended, where in American cinema, the, the, your your protagonist would always have to – it would be 
either a case of black and white, the uh, the good guy versus the bad guy, or the troubled bad guy, but they'd always have to get their comeuppance. And in this film, where we're seeing, all right, uh, okay, Walter Matthau, he's robbing a bank, right? Is he going to be the bad guy? But until we see the real bad guys, so we've got the good bad guys and the bad bad guys, it takes a while before we sort of realize, okay, we're supposed to be siding with Charlie Varick. He's a guy who's been hard done by. And he's, uh, we see it's like a case of him versus the man. He says he's the last of the independents. He, uh, he's a crop duster. And big business came and ruined him, so he's just getting his back by robbing a bank. So he, he's got two cases of the man, if you will. There's the law, and then there's the mafia, which we you know, eventually get to discover. They're the ones who are laundering in this bank, the bank which goes and says, we're part of the community, we should be trusted. But really, the only one who we, the viewers, trust is Charlie Varick. He's the good guy who's been forced to do something bad because of financial circumstances, because that pillar of the community, the bank authority has let him down. So it takes a little while before we get that. But um, I just sort of find that an interesting thing in this film. And I guess in a lot of seventies crime cinema in general from America. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the gray area is always the most exciting area uh, in my opinion, to play with as far as an art in general, but especially with like the crime genre. And, you know, there's like this, as you mentioned, like there, there's almost like a working class kind of parable because like Charlie and his wife are just these, you know, basically these good independent business people that have gotten squashed by, I think the, I think the way, uh, heart, you know, Andrew, uh, Robinson's character in Harmon put it out, oh, the combines, and it's like, and so he's basically, they're pushed into, you know, going into crime. And it's like, well, mm. what, what is the state of the country when good working class, hardworking people have been up and up, you know, this whole time are suddenly pushed into vice right. because they're just trying to make it like that's, I mean, you think about like the, the power of that statement. I mean, it's subtle and Siegel handles it beautifully. You're not like hit over the head with it by any means, but it was something I started thinking about and it's like, wow, that's really, that's heavy, but it's so smart. It's so smartly done. I'd actually read an article on your website, Heather, uh, about, uh, the film Mad Dog Morgan, and uh, I mean, I clicked because of the oh, she's written about an Australian film, and you sort of go and make a very similar point about uh, about Morgan being pushed into scenarios like that because authority had gone and screwed him over. So you know he'd gone and done some good things, but I think you said how much better could he have done if. You know, he hadn't been worked over by the authority, by the, the British ruling class of, uh, of Australia back in the bushranging days. A, a story about a guy who's been hard done by and feels that he or she has to go into crime to make ends meet will always get some sort of level of audience sympathy. I can think of one other case, which I might bring up later, though, that has a very different ending to this, but... Um, Oh, absolutely. It's a tale as old as time. I, yeah, I fought the law and the law won. <laughs> I like in this film, though, where um, we start to get the splintering. So once Walter Matthau's wife dies, and we, we've already sort of seen her, she's already actually committed a, a murder. Well, well, a murder, killing, however you want to call it. She's gone and killed a policeman in her line to escape, but we still feel that level of sympathy with her and 
the Andy Robinson character and Walter Matthau as Charlie Varick. But so essentially it becomes just uh, Varick and Harmon Sullivan. I like that they eventually develop that split between the two of them. It's, you know, uh, because Harmon Sullivan, as his character, is not as methodical, not as smart as Charlie Varick is. And he's just thinking, wow, we've got this shitload of money. We're going to do what we're going to do with it. And I want my bit. And Charlie starts to think different things once he realizes that the the money that they've stolen is laundered mafia money. And he's thinking, oh, we're in bigger trouble than we might actually realize. Uh, and that, that sort of schism in their working relationship starts at that point. And I just love, you can see the wheels turning in Charlie's mind. He's methodical the whole way through. There's no sentimentality, even when his wife dies, but he, he knows that he has to do something about Andy Robinson's character. He has to, which we eventually find out, we'll you know, probably eventually speak about, but I just love that. Okay. We've got this break between uh, Walter Matthau and his gang and, and the law, and then the, the, the mafia, the, the three separate entities in this film, and then within the, the Matthau-Robinson crew, then there's a schism in that. And I just, I, I'm, I'm really in admiration of how uh, Siegel goes and takes his time. It's very well paced how he spreads that out. We kind of already have hints that Charlie Varick is a very smart guy. I mean, the way that we see him, you know, pulling off the gray hair and all that kind of stuff, we're like, okay, yeah, this was all a disguise, so that was very clever. But then, like, that moment when Nadine is dying and Harmon comes up and he basically is like, she's done for, right? And the way that he shoots that look at Harmon, like, yeah, she's done for, but you don't say that in front of her. And yeah, of course, there's some love there. But, and I'm curious about the moment when he takes the ring off of Nadine's hand, because you can read it in two ways. You can read it as this is a gesture of love, like you're my wife and I'll never forget you and keeps it as a keepsake. Or you can be like, this is a valuable piece of jewelry that I'm going to hawk and I'm taking it off of this dead girl. She's not going to need it. And I like that there are the two readings for that because Charlie Varick is a very complicated character. And like you said, you can see the wheels moving. And that's why it's so great that we have such high caliber actors in this film is that you can see those gears like when the cops pull him over right after they've done the robbery and the way that he maneuvers the cop to be looking in the direction of where that car is going to explode. And immediately the cop is like, Oh Jesus. And runs off. And it's really nice the way that he has turned the cop around to be looking in that direction. You know, for that first 30 minutes, you are wondering like, what exactly is Varric's motives? Cause even with his wife dying, you know, most people would be a little more emotional with their partner, dying from a gun you know from a gunshot wound um and he you know you can see like the subtlety and the performance enough to where you know okay he does care for her but i wondered the same thing when i first saw it about the ring was like you know this is sweet but 
is it a hundred percent sweet? You know, is there something else attached to it? And, uh, which that happens a lot with this movie. There, there are little moments, even with some of the other characters that on surface level are sweet, but you kind of think about it and you're like, well, what are the hundred percent of the motives going on? And, uh, of course with Varric more and more is revealed where you're like, no, he's a good egg though. I do think it's interesting that you get this impression that Harmon has a much more of a, like criminal background, obviously, than Varric, because you know Charlie mentions how when him and Nadine decided, okay, we're going to have to, we're going to have to do something illegal to survive here, because you now the crop dusting isn't paying the bills. They sought out Harmon and his partner, which number one that makes me think, how do they know how to seek them out? But also, Harmon is like a total rube about the whole money, because Charlie's <laughs> immediately like, this is a tiny town. Why would a tiny bank in this tiny town? have you know what would be today's equivalent to four million dollars the harman's just like what are you complaining for all this money you know you kind of think the criminal <laughs> like the uber criminal of the two would be like oh shit like this is <laughs> you know, this is bad news bears but um but also the energy between the two like i love it that you guys pointed out um you know, especially worries about just how like, you know, Harmon's immediately just kind of like this live wire and Charlie's like a Buddha. He is just cool as a cucumber. You never see him at, you know, get angry. You never see him mm. lash out. You never see him act out like he's constantly like on his toes, uh, which is impressive given, I mean, the amount of adrenaline that you'd have to be going through as a human, especially as someone who's not even used to crime. Well, I think that he might be used to crime because when he's talking to that old man, the old legless man to get the the passports and the uh the the what what's he buying from the old man? Oh, he's the, he's there to get information about getting the passports. And talking a little bit about laundering the money and unloading the money, right? And he says, like, you know, oh, I know you from this guy who was in Joliet. So I think Charlie's got a criminal history. Oh, that's <laughs> that's an excellent <laughs> point. That's an excellent point. It's God, this movie. That's a, that's the gift of this movie, though, is that you know, you it, there's so many layers. There's so much you could just be like, whoa, that's I love this. And God, I mean, the chemistry between Andy Robinson and Mathau, I I love because like their energy as actors is just so different, but not in a way that kind of conflicts or performances if anything it just makes it kind of even more like yeah this is perfect casting you know because Mathau's just naturally kind of a more lower you know even when he plays like an you know a character that's dramatic and upset you know he's you know his energy is just different it's a different vibe but it's great and Robinson's on a completely different level but he's brilliant and you know freaking everything so it's just so cool I think there's also a good contrast between Math out as the character of Charlie Varick versus uh, Joe Don Baker as the hitman Molly. Now, we've already gone and said that us as an audience can never quite read into what Charlie Varick is going to do next. Uh, only he knows. He manages to hide his motivation very well. And as you keep going through the film, you sort of say, oh, that's what you did that for. In fact, you know, a couple of nights ago, I found another moment that I thought, oh my God, you planned that. But Joe Don Baker as Molly is the sort of character who wants you to think that you don't know what he's going to do next. But in the end, his love for violence and love for just pushing himself around, I mean, it 
it basically comes through. We as the audience know that after he goes to get that repossessed car, he is a really super dangerous man. And we think it doesn't matter where he goes, whether he smiles, whatever it is that he's going to say, it's either going to be physically violent or it's going to be threatening. Uh, but you get the impression, though, that he likes to think of himself as a man of mystery. I'm going to smile. You're not going to know what I'm going to do. But we as the audience who've already been watching you know, him in the film for you know, whatever, half an hour by the time he say gets to the old man in the gun shop, we know that he walks in when he smiles. He's not just going to say, right, I'm going to take your goodwill. Uh, he, he, you know he's going to do something, which he ends up you know, pushing the old man in the wheelchair to the back of the shop. But, yeah, that's what I take from the contrast of those two characters. I think it's very deliberately scripted. You know, Varric is deliberately unreadable, and Joe Don Baker's character, Molly, as he likes to think he's unreadable, but we know otherwise. Joe Don Baker's Molly is like a tightly coiled not even a rattlesnake, like a black mamba or something. Just like a really aggressive, <laughs> nasty. Joe Don Baker should have been in Venom with Klaus Kinski and Oliver Reed. He could he could have been the snake. Like he's so scary in this movie. And um and so sadistic. Like that's the thing I love about Siegel is as a director as a whole, like he's so good about presenting you nastiness. But not in a way that I, I would I would call overly gratuitous, but just ugly enough to where you're like, oof, like damn, like that's. And uh, Molly's a perfect example. I think this is probably one of my favorite Joe Don Baker roles. Like he, and I've always thought he was a good actor, but I mean, he is just. I mean, Jason Voorhees has nothing on Joe Don Baker <laughs> in this film. Heather, have you seen Walking Tall? Yes, yes, which he was great. I haven't seen Walking Tall since I was a kid, but yeah, no, no, and he was he was great in that. But maybe I don't know. Maybe if I saw Walking Tall this week, maybe I, you know, right now I'm on the Charlie Varick high. So. <laughs> in in prep for this, I went and watched Walking Tall because I don't think I'd seen much else with Joe Don Baker. I think maybe Mud might be the only other thing I can recall. But I watched you know him in Walking Tall, and in some ways. You know, like I, the opening 10 minutes of that, you see him as the good, loving family man. I thought, okay, he's going to be the anti-Molly. But when he's pushed into it, he's, I mean, he's the guy on the law's side rather than on the criminal side and that. But in a lot of ways, he's very much like Molly and that. You know, it doesn't take much to get him to become as violent or as uh, sociopathic as he is in in uh, Charlie Varick, even though ostensibly he's in inverted commas, the good side of, uh, of the law. Mind you, in that film, he gets the shit kicked out of him uh, a number of times. Oh, but sort of thought walking tall was more like a dramatic version of Porky's in, in, <laughs> uh, in, in some ways, you know, cause he gets thrown out of a brothel and has the shit kicked out of him. But, um, but yeah, I, I sort of found, even though his character is supposed to be on uh, the, the uh, as I said, the right side of the law, as it were, I sort of seem as really he's playing as, as a variation of uh, of Molly, you know, menacing um, and uh, threatening. And he walks around and he literally carries a big stick. Now I want to do a double feature. I feel like I need to <laughs> do a double feature, Charlie Varick and, and Walking Tall. All of the little things this character does, like actually speaking of brothels, like what did you guys think of that scene where, where Molly goes to the, the one of the sketchiest looking brothels this side of Flesh World? 
He gives a line in there that just, it cuts me every time he says it. When the woman is trying to offer him hospitality and like, oh, if you see any of the girls that you want to bed down with, you know, just let me know. And when he just turns to him and says, I don't sleep with whores, just gets me every single time. And that just really tells me what that character is all about. Just when he says that to a prostitute, just like... You know, it's basically like, I don't eat garbage. It's like, ugh, you know, he's so nasty about that stuff. And this is the same guy who just five minutes ago was like singing this goofy I painted her song. And he's got his big pipe and everything driving along as happy as he can be in that repossessed car. So he goes from those extremes, from taking the car away from the guy, you know, there in the car singing the song, being really nasty to that woman. And yeah, you just never know with him. Well, I don't necessarily know, but I think to your point, Morris, we kind of figure out that he's not going to hesitate to use his fist whenever he possibly can, because he seems to be genuinely sadistic. He seems to want to hurt people just to be able to hurt them, whether physically or with words. Yeah, when he goes to get the repossessed vehicle and, you know, this poor little kid, you know, because you basically put two and two together and see that this little boy's puppy has died and there's like a little grave for it so that automatically is like oh god that's heartbreaking and then this poor kid in the window has to see his father gets his ass kicked by Jodon baker who takes this like vehicle and you know and, and you get the feel that the father basically got screwed in a deal by honest john who's you know basically kind of the mob liaison that you know helps molly uh, basically puts Molly on the case. You know, just from there, it's like, oh, God, this is this universe. You know, talk about a contrast to the idyllic, you know, shots we saw of children and their families and Trace Cruces and the opener. You know, we've gone from that to like, you know, this poor family where they're losing their car. The father just got his ass kicked. And this little boy, you know, who's already crying because his dog's dead. Yeah, you know, it's just, oh, God, it's not pretty, folks. One thing that made me think that Tarantino was a big fan of this film. I mean, I know a lot of people have made the comparison about the line of uh, the blow torch and the pliers coming in later in the film being perfectly cribbed for Pulp Fiction. But I could see another Pulp Fiction connection. You've already gone and mentioned it, Mike, with the moment while Molly is driving on his way, I think, to uh, to the brothel and he's singing that song, I painted her, I painted her. And you, we just... See, you know, he's just driving along and he's uh, happy and in his own little world in this trivial little non-plot moment. But I reckon that Tarantino thought that was a good idea to do the same thing for Bruce Willis uh, singing the Captain Kangaroo theme song in uh, Pulp Fiction while he's driving back to his apartment. Just I, I can't really recall any other film that I've seen where someone's just driving along and just singing a little song to themselves and it's not necessarily plot related but um, maybe i haven't seen enough films but I, I reckon that that was probably another influence on tarantino just that i love that little moment where we get to see that i don't know if it's another side of molly but just something that drives him you know yeah I'm, I'm he's so completely confident in his physical ability to get what he wants and to hurt people and yet you know, he's, he doesn't think about it 24-7. He's just sort of thinking, I'm going to sing this little song to myself. You know, we haven't talked about the cops other than the one cop getting shot. We haven't talked about the policemen very much at all. And we don't get a whole lot of them, but I think it's really smart that we get a little bit of the police, but then the police are kind of, well, 
they have a uh, a face to them, which is William Shallard as the uh, uh, Sheriff Bill Horton. And folks may not know William Shallard by name, but they definitely, if they hear his voice or see mm. him, they would know him as Toby Gillis's dad. I'm pretty sure he was the spokesman for CBS, I think, for a long time, or Perry Drugs. And uh, yeah, he's been in just a ton of stuff, and he's got this great voice, he's got this very folksy attitude, and he is a really nice face to Trace Cruces, and then he is almost immediately kind of replaced by Norman Fell and a few other more faceless guys as the FBI comes in and takes over the case. And Norman Fell, I mean, a lot of people just associate him with Mr. Roper, but he was so good in movies and especially in Don Siegel movies. I always think of that moment in The Killers when it's Clue Gulliger and Lee Marvin going around and Norman Fell is in that steam thing and Clue Gulliger's wiping his sunglasses on Norman Norman Fell's sweaty head to then wipe them off. You know, he needs a little bit of liquid on there. Norman Fell is great. He's barely in this movie, but every time he's on screen, he's fantastic. There was that scene in the film where I, I think it's really quite a crucial conversation. Uh, John Vernon, as the uh, president of the bank, comes to Trace Cruces to uh, speak to the manager of the bank and you know we eventually get that scene you know a few minutes down the track but he ends up speaking to norman fell who's the uh is the da who's doing the investigation yeah mr garfinkel such a great garfinkel name. and we get uh john vernon with this passive aggressiveness uh and his casual racism i think he calls him what a a, a bagel muncher or, or or something like that later on in the film but we get this air of tension mr finkel uh, it's Garfinkel. Yes. Why can't I come into my own bank? And just the dynamic between the two of them, we, we know so much. We've been speaking so much about the dynamic between uh, Andy Robertson and um, Walter Matthau, and rightly so. But you get another couple of really great pairs of conversation. So that one between uh, John Vernon and Norman Fell. And then later on with uh, John Vernon and Woodrow Parfrey. And I just like the fact that in the script, they've worked out these great conversations. It could be all to be too easy to just sort of focus it on the lead characters, but they've given these character actors these crucial scenes. And uh, Norman Fell and John Vernon just play off each other so well. The, you know, the, the passive aggressiveness on, on Vernon's part and – the um, standing is ground. I've got a little bit of power, but I really don't need this shit sort of attitude of Norman Fell. I, I just think they do a magnificent job in that scene. This film is a Valentine for anybody that loves their great character actors because the cast, you know, with, I mean, John Vernon, like, yes, Norman Fell, yes. And I love that scene, especially because at one point when Vernon's waiting, you know, there's like this little girl on a swing, this little flaxen girl holding a cat and, you know, and she's like, mister, will you push me? And so, and he's, and he's like, and it's sweet. Like he's sweet with her, but there's almost this, you know, especially later on, as you see just how tied to his character Maynard is with the mob and with guys like Molly and all that. It just, you're like, Oh God, get this kid away from 
<laughs> you know, because she's just like this, you know, just shining picture of just, you know, innocence. I mean, complete with holding a kitten, you know, and uh, but it's such a great juxtaposition. And, and Vernon just, uh, you know, one of the greats. I love him and everything. And same with Fell. God, I'm glad you mentioned the killers, Mike. Anybody listening to this, if you haven't seen Seagulls, the killers, watch that after you watch Charlie Barrett, because it's it's brilliant. That moment with the little girl and John Vernon, it almost reminds me of the little girl in Frankenstein. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you mentioned that scene with uh, Woodrow Parfrey and, and John Vernon, and that's where the blowtorch and the pair of pliers line comes from. That scene, from what I understand, they had to shoot that three different days because they wanted it to be at the magic hour as the sun was setting. Mm-hmm. And that is a masterclass of acting to me to just watch the way that those two actors now Parfrey is kind of, you know, he's, he's at one emotional level, but just to see him there and to see Vernon just toying with him like a cat with a mouse and just the way that he's building up the terror in this other guy is fantastic. And just the way he's so, Matter of fact, with everything as he talks about these things, and in the, in the, even those throwaway lines, which aren't really throwaway, when he gets off of the fence at one point, and he looks over at these cows that are there, and he's just like, "Look at the the jugs on that one," you know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> such a weird thing, but it's like okay, and yeah, it just it makes you appreciate. I mean, every performance in this movie makes you appreciate these actors. Take a look at the big brown one out there. Man, what a set of jugs. You need a rest, Harold. A long trip to someplace quiet. Another name. Another country. I can't start my life over again now. You don't have much choice, Harold. They're going to try to make you tell where the money is. You know what kind of people they are. They'll strip you naked and go to work on you with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch. Oh, my God. Morris, you mentioned earlier the scene of of uh, Andy Robinson and Walter Matthau when when they find out that they have all that money. And, yeah, Andy Robinson is just like, yeah, yeah, we're going to be rich. We're going to be fantastic. And just him, when he turns on Varric, is just like, listen, I'm going to get mine and you're going to get out of my way and all this. And you can, again, you see those gears turning and you can just see, like, Varric thinking to himself, I got to get rid of this guy. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but this guy's a loose cannon and I'm going to take care of this. You know what dirty money is. That's the kind of money you can't declare on your income tax. But when certain people get that kind of money, what they do is send it out of the country to invest. And when it comes back, it's clean. So? So maybe that little bank was a drop, a collection point. Maybe all this was on its way out of the country. Fantastic. We lucked out. More like crapped out. It's ten to one. This stuff belongs to the mafia. This is gambling money, skimmed off the top, whore money, dope money. What's the difference? The difference is that the mafia kills you. No trial, no judge. They never stop looking for you, not till you're dead. I'd rather have ten FBI's after me. Mafia money. All I wanted was a small take, in and out, quick, no big deal. Well, don't you worry, Charlie, because if you don't want your share, I'll be more than happy to take it over for you. I'm sure you would, Harmon. Well, what do you want to do? Give it back? I've been thinking about it. Charlie Barrick. Well, I got some news for you, Charlie. You haven't got the balls of a bull canary bird. 
And something else. I ain't giving back penny number one. Neither am I. Then what are we arguing about? Wouldn't do any good to give it back. Nobody takes the mafia for this kind of money and lives to tell about it. They would have to set an example. They got to find us first. That's not as hard as it sounds. Word goes out and every two-bit hustler in the world is looking to turn you in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Cosa Nostra's everywhere. You better believe it, boy. I believe this. We're going to have to keep pretty quiet for a while. That's so? That's right. Best way to get nailed is to start tossing that stuff around. And what's your idea of a while? Three years. Maybe four. Are you telling me that I can't spend none of this money for three, four right, years? Right, right. That's what I'm telling you. And you better lay off that juice, too. That's another way to get nailed. Me along with you. Any more instructions? No. Nothing more. You want to hang on to me? Not right now. And I got something I want to hang on to you, Jimmy Dick. I've been waiting all my life to make a score like this. And now that it's here, I ain't waiting no more. I mean, I'm going to wail. And I'm talking about chicks, cars, clothes, a box of the races, and beefsteak three times a day, and no washed-up chicken shit. Son of a bitch, you'd better try to stop me. Okay, kid, you're calling it. And basically, the rest of the movie is all of these little micro-maneuvers that he's doing. You, you talked about, like, oh, I didn't see how they did this and then did that. And this whole movie after that point is like this big chess game where we have all of these different, it's like three sided chess between the cops, the mob, and then Varric there. And even Harmon is kind of like off to the side. You don't really know what he's going to do. He's a wild card. And just the way that Varric is there maneuvering all of this stuff so that everything falls into place. I'd actually made a note that I thought that this film beyond that point was one big chess game. And Walter Matthau was the grand chess master and you know, leaving everyone in his wake and just uh, l- later on when when um, Molly thinks he's got him in check and Matthau is going to give him the checkmate, uh, he's got everything planned. And just sort of coming back to that scene where Molly comes to the trailer and beats the shit out oh. of Andy Robinson, as brutal as that is. But I think the first couple of times that I watched this film and we see Walter Matthau hiding in the bushes and I'm thinking – why is he doing that? Does he know that Molly's coming? And then when I watched it again the other night, I thought, oh, my God, I realize now he had planned this. He was so secretive about everything. But he goes and gives his name and address and details to that woman who's going to make the fake passports, which it just occurred to me. He never had any intention of collecting the fake passports, but he had a feeling that uh, Molly was going to trace him down eventually and he'd do it through her. He'd follow. He was always one step ahead. The gun shop, the woman with the uh, the passports. So he thought, right, okay, uh, Harmon Sullivan is a loose cannon. This is a way how I'm going to get rid of him. I'm going to I'm going to get this big gorilla off my back. Get him to kill him, not me. So it just occurred to me three nights ago. He's waiting in the bushes because he'd planned this all along, and that's yeah, a brilliant maneuver of chess. But it did confuse me up until you know just this week. On a side note, I just loved how whenever Harmon would get mad at Charlie and he'd call him, uh, was he calling him Jimmy Dick? That was amazing. <laughs> I'm like, Andy Robinson say, you know, Jimmy Dick. Like, I was like, yes, like, this is, 
it's so it was so good and i loved i loved the uh that we have sheree north you mentioned the yeah the passport lady sheree north as jewel yeah. everett the photographer and she's just she's just like so casual about it just casually grifting <laughs> almost grifting charlie for extra money and he's like can i have you know how much does this lollipop cost and she's like 500 and he's like never mind <laughs> so even in a film like this where it's ostensibly part of, as you said, Mike, that thriller trilogy, that serious trilogy, even this film has these wonderful moments of humor. So that, how much for the lollipop? $500. I'm putting it back. There's a scene where Walter Matthau goes into uh, this shop and he goes and buys probably some of the cheapest dynamite I've ever heard of. I didn't realize that four sticks of dynamite would only cost you eight ninety five. But the guy who sells in the dynamite says, uh, um, can I ask you what you're using this for? And he walks out of the shop and says, you certainly may. And I just thought <laughs> another bit of droll Walter Matthau humor. And it sort of occurred to me that even in his out-and-out comedic films like you know The Odd Couple or um, The Fortune Cookie, which is a huge favorite of mine, even in those films – where he's still doing something comedic, there's always that serious side of him. I mean, we spoke about for years, like comedians like uh, Robin Williams, who went from doing the comedic stuff to doing out-and-out drama. But I think Walter Matthau had always had both in him at the time. So the fact that he's done a trilogy of dramatic films like this showed me that it, it wasn't really a surprise. You know, he'd done drama within the sphere of the comedies that he'd done before and i i remember reading something because i'd seen a long time ago face in the crowd and i i'd forgotten that he was in that as well playing a very very different character i think to every, every other film that he's done it, i mean maybe this is unfair to say because i admire him so much but it always seems to be like the droll curmudgeon and he might be cleverer than he is in one or uh, than in another but I think in Facing the Crowd, if I remember correctly, it was a character where he sort of showed a little bit more of – sorry, there was a little bit less of the curmudgeonly side that we get to see in any other film. You know, whatever, Bad News Bears, Barrack, uh, yeah, The Odd Couple, any, any other film, uh, A New Leaf. Every one of these films, he's playing a variation of a theme, but it works. It really works so well. Facing the crowd seemed, if I can recall, because it's been a long while, seemed to be something, though, that was a little bit different for him. Well, it was nice that he would work with Andy Griffith a couple times, because he also worked with him in Onion Head as well, which is the sequel to No Times for Sergeants, which was, for a long time, that was really hard to find. And then finally, I managed to track down a copy. So that was one that I really enjoyed. And it's been so long since I've seen him in King Creole, but I remember when I first saw that, I was like, holy shit, is that Walter Matthau? Because he doesn't – obviously, this is 1958 when King Creole is out, and I'm used to like 60s, 70s, and yeah, up into the 80s Walter Matthau at that point. But yeah, I was very taken aback that that was him, and he seems to be kind of – if memory serves, he's kind of the voice of reason, and he's not looking for jokes at that point. But yeah, I mean, King Cruel is just such a fantastic film. Man, I think one of like Matthau's strong points for me, like any anything I've seen, you know, and I think you both have seen way more Walter Matthau movies than I have. I'm like Onion Head. Like this is I need to catch up. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, is that he? I think he's an actor just kind of carried this sense of um, 
almost like a world weariness, which lends itself beautifully to this role, obviously, of just there's um you know, not even quite maybe like a sadness, but just a man who's, you know, he could be cool about it all because maybe he's seen it all. You know, maybe he's been through enough, you know, enough shit in his life to where, you know, you either develop that callous as a human and you're like, okay, I'm tough. I got this. Or, you know, it consumes you. I think Matthau in certain roles, I think he kind of had that a little bit naturally, but obviously certain performances are going to play into that more than others. And But here it's uh, played perfectly like a fiddle he's brilliant i can sort of think just now of one other role where he played against his regular type and on paper this sounds like oh not a great film but i loved it to bits it was a bruce beresford film called iq and he's playing as albert einstein i think against tim robbins have you seen this one mike do you know this one it's been a long time since i've seen it. i remember that as being one of those movies where meg ryan break some guy's heart who doesn't necessarily deserve to have his heart broken. Right. That was Stephen Fry. Tim Robbins plays as a garage mechanic with a layman's interest in science. And Albert Einstein just happens to be someone who comes to his garage and takes a liking to him. Meg Ryan plays as Einstein's niece and you know, Einstein and his uh, cohorts, including the wonderful, wonderful Lou Jacoby, don't really like Stephen Fry, who's, I think, a, 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 they call him the rat man because I think he's a, a, an experimental psychologist. Anyway, but without sort of going further into that film, just go out and see it. But I just love the fact that you see this very tender side of Walter Matthau. We, he's not curmudgeonly in this. He's, um, he's a, a character that you feel really, really affectionate for. I mean, you know, it's, probably, it's, it's all you know, uh, revisionist uh, bullshit sort of history, but, it's, um, but he really plays Einstein in a way. I mean, I'm sure, I don't know whether he did any research to say, right, I wonder what Albert was like, but the, the character that he presents in the film is just so beautiful and Matthau's acting chops are just, he really endears you to him in, um, in that film. So, yeah, look, I, I guess overall, he, he could do the curmudgeonly thing or the world weariness, as you, you went and said, I think, Heather, but um, I, I liked it when occasionally we got to see him do something different like he did in IQ or as for that scene in, uh, in uh, Face in the Crowd. I think it helped that he had that look to him, that hangdog look. Yes. And he just got to wear that on his face that was his face. And so he was able to pull off those dour times and also those sour times where he would just kind of look at the camera almost and be like, what do you want from me? Look at my <laughs> face. You know? oh, look, I, I think the director's who had worked with him, they made great use of his face. I mean, all I need to say is Gesundheit. And that final picture of him in uh, taking Pelham one, two, three, and you just know that they said, uh, Walter, give us that look. <laughs> and uh, yeah, absolutely, that, that hangdog look. And man, he gets to bed down with uh, with a pretty hot chick in this movie, too. Talk about an unexpected scene when he and Sybil Fort, uh, sorry, Felicia Farr is the actress, Sybil Fort is the character. And yeah, they get to go at every point on the compass. So that's pretty fantastic. Watch your mouth now. Sex God. Like, that was so smooth. <laughs> How he's, you know, because, you know, she's, you know, it, it was just so funny because he's like, wow, you got a round bed there. What What's that like? And it's like, it's, it's she, you know, most women be like, um, I think you need to leave. Strange man, that kind of 
broke into my apartment <laughs> and has some weird shady dealings with my boss because, you know, she's Maynard's secretary. She's his executive secretary. But no, she's like, okay, yeah, let's uh, let's let's uh, do all the sides of the compass on my bed, baby. And she even like, at one point, he's even like, I need to go to bed. And she's like, oh, but we haven't done South by Southwest. And, you know, it's like, what? This is... <laughs> Well, when a man brings you flowers. The best endorsement for roses ever, I guess, for street-side roses. We would be uh, remiss if we did not mention uh, Don Siegel's cameo in the film. I, it's, oh, so, it's so, it's so, you could miss it if you're not looking for it, but it's so great once you realize you're like, oh my God, it's Don Siegel. Because he, you know, we meet him at Honest John's little, which I love Honest John's, that character, which we had a little more of. Um, though I would say this film's pretty near perfect, but yeah, because it, it's like he has a Chinese restaurant that's basically a front for mob activities and legal gambling. And I love that his hostess, like when she greets Molly, you know, has this accent until he's like, I'm Molly. And she's like, oh, okay. And she's completely, yeah, it's like, she's American. And, um, yeah, but then like there's this like Honest John's playing ping pong with this guy wearing this amazing coot hat. Like it's one of those old fishing like coot hat so the guy's like you you know creep (laughs) like he's like the worst loser in the world (laughs) and honest john just like laughs it's like yeah sucker and then they finish the shot and he says did i do well mr siegel did i do well also what one interesting trivia about this movie speaking of trivia i um found and i wish i had more quotes to back this up even though i do actually have the book that this is sourced from but i haven't read it in a long time is uh ray davies of the kinks apparently is a huge fan of charlie varick which i already uh, worship at the altar of ray davies like same here oh my god and uh and he's a kind of a cool filmmaker in his own right but uh uh, as well as being one of the most brilliant you know singer songwriters rock gods and you know in the universe but uh but yeah i mean i can't think of a better endorsement than that i mean right if ray davies loves it come on can we talk about the music for a couple of minutes um i've already sort of gone and made reference to lele schiffen in that opening scene like mike in a correspondence with us during the week you said something about like when you hear lele schiffen you know it and in a way, that's true. Uh, I sort of felt, you know, because like he's written these iconic scores for Mission Impossible and and Dirty Harry and Bullet and uh, Enter the Dragon. I think might have been the first thing I remember hearing. Is, oh, maybe I saw Dirty Harry first. I can't recall, but either of those two. So yeah, there is a definite style to what he does. But yet, I also sort of think that it might have just been a 1970s thing. Because if you like, listen to uh, the score for Taking the Pelham One Two Three by uh, David Shire, that very much sounds, until you see his name on the screen, you would have thought, oh, that's a Lalo Schifrin score. Oh, no? Oh, okay. So other people were doing that whole sort of uh, jazz orchestra type of thing. And what seemed like to be typical of that was percussion being mixed to the front. So you'd get a lot of uh, the hi-hat, the closed hi-hat sort of style of playing, uh, the bass coming in, horn stabs, uh, lots of flutes and the you wouldn't be getting full-on string sections but where you would get some string work it'd all be very discordant and i think that was typical of what i hear in the Schifrin scores in this film and in his other films as well as um the other films that he's written for and the, the, uh, as well for uh as well for what other composers who were doing similar sorts of things in that era were doing. And 
I, I guess there's also maybe a, a bow could be a bow could be drawn to so that they were influenced by what was coming out of the the funk movement. So you know you get scores written by a uh, you know the likes of Marvin Gaye for Trouble Man or Roy Ayers for Coffee or uh, Willie Hutch for Foxy Brown. And they're all in a very tight funk sort of vein, which was very predominant in the black exploitation films and just very common in music in the early 70s. And I'd be surprised if Lolo Schifrin and David Shire and others of their ilk hadn't been listening to that and were taking inspiration from that for their score for, for their scores for these films. I just kept hearing that, I don't know how you would say it, kind of that chugging violin kind of thing that he did in Cool Hand Luke. guess it's just because i've heard that the cool hand luke score so many times that there are moments where he does kind of the same orchestration in this where i'm just like oh yeah that's totally lalo schifrin and there are other times you know like it's not as bad as like other composers where you're just like oh he used that exact same kind of thing like michael Kamen, you know it's like oh i'm watching roadhouse and the climax is coming and i was like oh this is exactly the same music from die hard or um you know the the climax of star trek 2 and aliens or even when i'm you know walking through the room and my wife's watching crawl and i'm like oh that's that's totally the same composer because i can hear that exact same music going on but yeah schifrin he was very different. You would never think that the guy who did Starsky and Hutch also did Mission Impossible. You know, those two scores are very different. But there are some orchestrations that he'll use here and there where it's just like, oh, yeah, now I can picture that. That's the, the thumbprint for me is when I hear that same kind of chugging string section going on. Well, I think he definitely had something that distinguished him while still being melodically inventive. And right, as you say, okay, Starsing Hudgen, uh, Mission Impossible will be two different things, and yet you can draw that line between the two of them. So many films that I see today, and I hate to sound like the old man on the lawn, but a lot of them sound so generic and you can't tell one from the other. But whilst being able to identify 
Lalo Schifrin or, you know, maybe other composers of that era. They're still melodically different whilst being able to use uh, the, the jazz orchestra and heavy on the percussion as their idiom, uh, while still being melodically different enough and melodically memorable, I think, in my way of thinking. But, um, yeah, I, I would just like to sort of hope that more contemporary composers uh, would go back and sort of like use Lalo Schifrin as an influence than, say, you know, going back to the uh, big orchestral scores of John Williams as an influence. And, you know, that's nothing on John Williams, but I think a lot of what's been happening over the last 20, 30 years has been using the big orchestras as a template. And I'm, I'm not sure if it's through uh, lack of finances, or, you know, just wanting to make films a bit cheaper, but they sort of went for smaller ensembles uh, when creating scores for these early 70s crime films, or maybe just because I thought, well, you know, if films are changing, then the music ought to be changing to reflect the new dynamic in in uh, Hollywood filmmaking. But I don't know. It could, yeah, could be an influence of both. I love the fact that you brought up with the 70s movies and their scores, because I think a lot of it, for me, is why it works so well, is that it makes sense for a film like this to have a, a tenser, like, not a tense necessarily, but a, you know, not a big, huge orchestral type score. Because, like, when you think of that type of score, you think of something like that it's this epic, whether it's Star Wars or, I don't know, Lawrence of Arabia, like, something that's, like, some sweeping huge epic, where, as opposed to just this, you know, this very gritty you know, tightly made crime drama. And, you know, to have like, to have like a John Williams score on this would be obscene. And I don't know, it, it, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> for, for a lot of reasons, but yeah, no, I mean, that's, uh, I think that's part of maybe like one of the main reasons why like, like the seventies were sort of like, I think a halcyon era of crime cinema. I think even uh, Bernard Herman, uh, I mean, I, and we know that like he was one of the great innovators of, uh, screen composition from uh, for many years and all those years that he recorded for he wrote music for Hitchcock but I like to think that when he wrote the score for Taxi Driver like his final film that he was digging into what was you know the predominant sounds of cinema American cinema in that period the the crime films of that period in particular because that the, the score for that film is not using a big orchestra like he might have used in something like Psycho or or um, The Man Who Knew Too Much or any of those sorts of films. He's writing a score that is heavy on the percussion, heavy on discordant horns, and I think that's sort of typical of what was uh, compositionally happening in uh, in those crime films of the period. So I think it, it was nice to sort of think that perhaps Bernard Herman was saying, right, well, I know a lot and I've initiated a lot, but I want to hear what the people of today are doing. That's I don't know. I mean, if there's a Bernard Herman expert out there who can correct me and say, well, in fact, this was his motivation, but I like to think that that's uh, where he was coming from. Schifrin did some really nice playing in Kelly's Heroes when he basically was doing Morricone in the Kelly's Heroes score, which was fantastic. Just looking at Lalo Schifrin's CV, it's amazing to see how many things that we've talked about just on the projection booth that he has written the scores for. So just looking at 1970 on, 
1138. We talked about the Hellstrom Chronicle and we talked about Phase 4. I've talked about Christian Licorice Store, but haven't done an episode on it. Prime Cut Hit, he did. Uh, Charlie Varick, which we're talking about right now. Man on a Swing, which we talked about just a few weeks ago. Dr. Detroit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Call the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) When I think of my favorite, my own personal favorite film composers, like people that just brought it and have done some of my favorite soundtracks, it's Lalo, it's Herman, it's more Cody, you know, it's Quincy Jones. Like it's, these are, mm. these are people that just, you know, were able, I think to, I mean, Morris, you put this beautifully uh, regarding Herman, but these are, these are artists that were able to have their own thumbprint, but yet didn't let that thumbprint overwhelm the score, which I, I think is a, a problem that a lot of the big composers have now have like people like Williams and, and Danny Elfman, like initially were exciting, because it's like, oh, wow, okay, this is different, this is big. But after a while, it's like, this is kind of the same shit. <laughs> you know? yes, it's like, yes. And you both are better than this, like, right. I, I'm assuming. You know, they're not really pressured, I think, either out of their comfort zone. And that's, I mean, that's a whole other comment, I think, on Hollywood right now, which we won't go into. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but that's why these guys that we've all mentioned, these, these big dogs, these masters, um, that was their beauty is they – they knew when to pull. They knew when to put out the big stops. They knew when to pull it back. And, and talk about a perfect marriage of that with a guy like Don Siegel. You know, a great director. Um, it's just you know every every element in this film, from the cinematography, you know, to the writing and the music. It's you know, it's it's perfect. This this film should be. It's like it's such a crime to me. It's so underrated. I mean. And and the fact that you know, from my understanding, you know, because I was uh, rereading parts of Andy Robinson's memoir, uh, "Stepping Into the Light," which is utterly brilliant, by the way. Anybody, anybody who's a fan, not even just of Andy Robinson, but also the art of acting, and just you know, likes reading great writing because he's such an intuitive, insightful person. It sounds like you know, Universal didn't push this movie; they basically released it and let it die, and uh, which is bizarre because I mean, this is post Dirty Harry, which obviously did really good but um i just don't know if maybe it, they felt it was easier to push something with clint eastwood as opposed to a more unlikely protagonist in the form of math or or what but this this film's a gem and it really i'm glad that we're talking about it so hopefully it can find more more new more new viewers and appreciators well there's a beautiful new uh, blu-ray release from um uh, indicator films which i think it's a, like a new blu-ray company on the block in the criterion mode and i ordered a copy of that and it looks absolutely superb so uh it is easily uh available out there people should be giving this their attention from what i was reading in uh the notes in the booklet that came with the blu-ray uh Mathau was no fan of the film and he kept saying to Siegel, why would he do this i don't understand what what's going on i'm not a dumb guy you know i i but I don't understand what the hell is going on here. So you sort of wonder. I wonder if uh, Mathau had said something in public. And yeah, no, he kind of undermined the film as well, from what I understand. I'm trying to remember where I heard that. If that was on the the documentary that's part of that Indicator Blu-ray, or if it was in something else that I just read recently. Mm-hmm. But yeah, from what I understand, he kind of bad mouthed the film and didn't didn't go out there and help with the cause which is a real shame because yeah this movie is so great and i don't know why he would have had a problem with this because this kind of puts you know he was already on the map but this puts him on the map as like a real viable 
action star, you know, right there with taking Pelham one, two, three, he's kind of stuck in a room for most of it. He gets to do some great stuff in the laughing policeman, but it's not necessarily an action film. It's more of a policier. This one, it's kind of more of an action film. And uh, yet it's also a, uh, a thinking man's action film. The way that we're talking about this chess game that he's playing, the way that all these pieces are fitting together. There's a lot of, you know, cerebral stuff happening in this movie. It's not just Molly as the unstoppable force and, going through and just kicking ass throughout the entire thing. I mean, that's what he does, but then you have to figure out the way that Charlie Barrick is going to use that to his advantage. We hadn't actually sort of gone and spoken so much about the two big action set pieces that are at either end of the film. I just found it fascinating reading in the notes that you sent through, Mike, and I think it was also in the booklet for the Indicator Blu-ray about how just how they put together an action scene. I mean, I'm not saying that this is, you know, the only action film that had its problems on the set, but I'd never read anything uh, that explained just, you know, day by day what they had to do to make these scenes work and where things went wrong, what they did around them. So like the opening scene where it was supposed to be uh, the police car where the bonnet flew up and it ended up being, uh, Mathau and Sullivan's car where the bonnet flies up and you know it was unpredicted and I think Siegel said to his stunt people you morons you idiots you're the worst people I've ever had to work with why couldn't you make this work right well do you want us to fix a car no we'll work around it tomorrow and um, I just found that absolutely fascinating and then they talk as well about the end scene with Molly's car chasing Mathau in the plane and once again everything just sort of works so well there with Lalo Schifrin's score but reading up in the notes that was fraught with difficulties where the car had to slow down a bit so it made it look like it was only just keeping up with the plane that was sort of ground bound Uh, and things went wrong there as well it seemed like you know Siegel didn't really have much time for uh, for the stuntman and terms of uh, having sympathy for you know, the hard work that they were doing. But although he would say, but make sure you go out there and play it safe. Very Hill Street Blues there. I, I just found that really fascinating reading, and I would have loved to have seen the set, been on the set to watch how this sort of thing was put together. I mean, it, is it days and days of five seconds worth open, start, stop, start, stop? Or I don't know. I just think that would be fascinating. But I just love how the film opens up very tense and it closes up very tense and then boom Walter Matthau gets checkmate the last 10 minutes of that movie I was demonstrative about it like I was clapping I was like oh my god I was super loud I my apologies to my neighbors who will never listen to this but <laughs> and definitely apologies to my to uh, my male cat Ziggy who was probably used to me being like he's like oh god shut up woman but like <laughs> but but oh my god it's so beautifully handled and i i think finding out that there were issues and, and especially because i i know in um robinson's book he he even mentioned that you know you know when they were making it you know Mathau was constantly you know was like i don't understand what's going on but he but the thing i love is you know like 
like us three, right, you know, Andy also pointed out, man, what a great performance. And I was just like, that's the beauty of this movie is like, yeah, I mean, finding out that there are elements that should have made this a weaker film, whether it's the production problems or, you know, your lead actor not understanding or not liking the direction. But yet you wouldn't know it by watching it. If you, if, you know, like. You, you would never guess it. And um, that doesn't always happen. Usually with most films that have troubled production, I mean, even the ones that turn out kind of good, you can tell. Like, there's usually some kind of crack that will show. But I don't really think that's the case here. I know where I read it at. It was actually in Don Siegel's autobiography. He said, I didn't realize that throughout its making, Walter told every reviewer that he neither liked the picture nor understood it. I felt his attitude seriously hurt the profits. Yet he won many awards and accolades for a superb performance, including the British Film Academy Award as Best Actor of the Year. I still feel he deserved all the awards and excellent reviews. Unfortunately, because of his negative attitude, he was, to a large extent, responsible for the studio's lack of interest in Charlie Varick. If a studio doesn't get behind the selling of a picture, you might as well not make it. Man. Oh, that what sucks. A, yeah. What an <laughs> asshole. Because Siegel also talks about... After Matthau read the script, he he did a recording of all of his notes, and he was like, no, 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 we should open it on uh, an interviewer talking to this guy, and then the guy tells the story, and each of these things are like vignettes, and he can almost narrate the story. So it's almost like uh, like Little Big Man or something, and it's just like, yeah, no, I'm really glad they didn't go that way. I'm glad that they trusted the audience a little bit more. It doesn't give too much away. Like you do, it gives you enough clues, but like you kind of, like you touched upon earlier more is, is that there are things that click more when you rewatch it because, uh, and I, and I love that because to me, like great filmmaking should make you work for it a little bit. I, I think the problem is like, I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of like a lot of current day action films. Um, though I love a lot of like seventies and even eighties stuff, but it's just nowadays, it just seems like everything's so handed to you. It's like, like everybody in the audience is five years old and it's like, <laughs> but obviously like it's an action film. It's not a kid's film. Make us work a little bit. You know, the best crime films in the world are the ones that almost that make your brain work as hard as whatever weaponry and fisticuffs is going on on the screen. I actually, before I forget, because this is such a cool conversation, um, I have a quote about this movie that I absolutely loved. And it sums up, uh, and it says, Charlie Varick is like your favorite shirt. When you put it on, you just feel better. And that was from Piastro Cruzo, who, uh, for any of you classic adult era fans that might be listening, because uh, we've touched upon that genre on this show before, uh, he wrote uh, Anna Obsessed, which is which talk about a great, very smart noir film and crime film. Uh, so there you go. Like it is, it's, it's a film that is tense, but yet comforting because it's so damn good. Yeah. It's definitely rewatchable. I mean, I've watched it like in the last few weeks about three times and that's not even counting like when I'd originally seen it, but I think that over the next whatever period of time, I'll be watching it again multiple times. It's just yeah, a, a film you can definitely return to. All right. We're going to take a break and play an interview with actor Andrew Robinson and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, 
you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. music-related movies. <laughs> iTunes, Facebook, or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com. <laughs> the See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. Out, out, out. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booths. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. When did you know that you wanted to be an actor? It was pretty early in my life, but then as I got older and got into college, I, you know, I thought, well, that's unrealistic, and I kind of backed away from. It. But I, you know, I'd been doing plays all through high school and 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 in college. I had an art history teacher in college when he said, "So, what are you going to do with your life?" And I said, "I don't know. Maybe I'll thinking of becoming, you know, working in newspaper business or." something teaching and he said no he says you're an actor because he'd seen me act and he was he was very supportive and very kind about what he considered my talent and he said you're foolish to do anything else and I so I and very naively I said you know uh so how do you do that and he said and then without skipping a beat he said this is what you do you write to the United States State Department and you ask them for a, for, a form for to for a Fulbright scholarship because they give scholarships to people to go study acting in England. And and so he explained it to me as if it were like uh, filling out a form to get my driver's license. And so I, I dutifully did so, got the forms from the State Department, filled them out. And long story made short, I, you know, I got a Fulbright. And only when I was in England uh, studying did I realize that it was competitive. <laughs> That's how naive I was that there were thousands of people applying for that. And there were like only three or four you know, of, of those scholarships given each year. That pretty much set me off. Once once I got my, my toe in there, and it was a great school. I, mean, I went to the school in London called the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, Lambda. And it was, it was, a, it was a, a terrific place. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and and very fortunate. I mean, that that's kind of like what my life has been like, you know, just naively stumbling through doors and asking, "Whoa, what, what's what's in here?" When you got out of college, I imagine you did a, a lot of stage work. Where were you working at? Where were you acting? Well, when I got out of yeah, because right out of college, then I went to England to study for a year, and when I came back from England. I was really one of those, one of the fortunates. I started working and I never stopped working. I, I went, you know, I started working in repertory theaters around the country, serving an apprenticeship. And so I worked in, I would say, I think four, you know, and, and in those days, Mike, they had, you know, they had a lot more repertory theaters than they have now. And so I would go, you know, my first job was in Milwaukee and, and then I was, went to Cincinnati and to Providence and to Philadelphia. And then got my equity card, and then I came to New York, and that's when I started, you know, like uh, working in New York. Well, you were only, what, like 28, 29 years old when you were uh, first got your first movie role? Yeah, yeah, I was 28 when, when I got to Dirty Harry. Can you tell me what that process was, like meeting Don Siegel and getting in that role? It was amazing because I was a friend of Don Siegel's son, who was an actor in New York at the time, Christopher Tabori. So I got this appointment to meet with Don Siegel. And at the time, I didn't realize that he was Chris's father. 
they had been estranged. And so, uh, so when I met Don, and, and, and Don was a, a formidable guy, I mean, really an amazing man. The meeting only lasted 15 minutes, you know, and all I can remember from that meeting was I, me asking him to come to see me in this play that I was doing at the, at the, at the Shakespeare Festival, and he's saying, no, i got to catch a plane back to Los Angeles. Uh, and then I, at the end of the meeting, I thought, well, that was that. Uh, and then two weeks later, Clint Eastwood showed, showed up at this play because Don obviously was interested in me. And, and I think Clint, you know, had uh, a say in the casting. So he sent him to the play uh, and, and, and then I got the job. But it was only after <laughs> that Chris, Chris told me, oh, it was Don actually told me because I was asking, him, how, ca- how come you hired me? to play this, this creepy guy. And he said, well, there are two reasons. One was I wanted somebody who looked like a choir boy to play this monster. And then the other thing was I asked my son, who was the best actor in New York? And he said, you. And I said, who's your son? <laughs> and he said, Chris Tavori, which blew my mind. What was that experience like playing such a wonderfully evil character? It was, it, oh God, I, you know, I thought all filmmaking was going to be like this. I had such a great time because I was just so, you know, just so filled with the adventure of, of doing something I'd never done before. And, and plus I was like really in good shape, both as an actor and, and physically. Um, so I, I just was just coming up with all kinds of ideas and, and Don, you know, laughed half of them out of the room, but half of them he thought were good ideas. So I felt like I was really collaborating and in, in, in creating this, you know, this, this film, certainly creating this character. It was only after, you know, when it came out and uh, I realized that there's this thing called typecasting. That was a rude awakening. And that, and that for years, you know, all anybody wanted to see me do was just to kill people. That really got old very quickly. And, uh, and, you know, and sort of like sent me down a different path. Actually, it sent me back to doing theater. But it was a great experience. I mean, it really was revelatory. I imagine that Mr. Siegel had a really good time working with you since he asked you to be in Charlie Varick right afterwards. He was very loyal. And, you know, and, and he also, you know, he, he made sure that I was going to be in that film uh, because he knew that I was, you know, I was up against it, you know, uh, once, once Dirty Harry had come out. It's so funny about Charlie Varick. You know, I, I make it sound like it was a charity thing, but it really wasn't. It was a, it, it was a, a, a terrific role, and, and it was very different from, you know, the Scorpio Killer. And the movie itself was really, I thought, deceptive. I, I think it's the favorite movie that I've ever been in. Because, I mean, when I, even now when I watch it, just recently I was invited to a... Um, film noir uh film festival in, in palm springs just just last spring and the guy who organized the film festival he considers you know charlie varick late film noir and so i, I watched it uh, on a big screen and for the first time in a long time and it was wonderful it really was it, it is a, a wonderful film i just watched it again last night and yeah it still holds up and just the way that it's plotted, the way that it's built, and then just the caliber of actors—my God! It really was terrific. I mean, 
that was Don's stable. That was his repertory company. I mean, all all those wonderful actors like Woody Parfrey and John Vernon and, and and Tom Tully and all the rest of them. What was it like working with Walter Matthau? I had such a great time with him. I mean, I really did. He's probably you know of of all the so-called stars that I've ever worked with. You know the people who were considered stars. He was he was the most human. He was the most approachable. He had just given up gambling at the time. I mean, he he had well he he was constantly falling off the wagon. But he he really was trying to you know to to stay away from gambling because gambling was just dogged him you know, forever. And so we would be picked up in the morning uh, by the car to go to a location. And because we were shooting in Nevada, <laughs> Walter Walter would stop would ask the driver to stop at a casino on the way to I think it was Carson City. And, uh, and he'd give me $20 bill and he'd say, okay, just put this, we're going to the roulette table and you put it on red or black. Cause I, I, I knew nothing about gambling. So we'd walk in, I'd put my $20 down, get my chips and put it on red or black. And he'd do the same thing with his $20 and neither one of us ever won. And then after that was over, we would leave and go back, get back in the car and go to work. I think that was, that's the way, how he inoculated himself. But he was that kind of guy. He really was. And what was it like getting your ass literally kicked by Joe Don Baker? It was the most horrible couple nights of my life. I mean, we're in this little trailer. And of course, because when I met Don for, you know, dirty, to do Dirty Harry, I had been in a, in a downtown New York theater company. It was a very physical theater company. And in and and our our work was you know involved a lot of you know tumbling and and stuff like that. So as I say, you know, we were in very good physical shape. And so when I did Dirty Harry, I did all my own stunts except for one. And uh, and so Don loved that. And so when we got to that scene in the trailer uh, in in Charlie Varick, of course. He could shoot it the way he wanted to because, uh, you know, without cutting away to a stuntman getting flipped over and and uh, and, and the shit kicked out of him uh, in various ways, shapes and form. And by the end of those two nights of shooting, I was I was a wreck. I mean, I know that you took those falls and everything, but I'm hoping there was at least some attempt at stage combat. So it wasn't full force that you're hitting these things at. No, well, I mean, I had padding and so forth, you know, but, but in a confined place like that, I mean, you're always knocking something, you know, and, and of course we shot a lot more, obviously, as you do in film than, uh, than Don put together in, in the scene. So that's why it was, it was two nights of shooting because if, if it put everything in that we did, it would have been, I mean, beyond sadistically brutal. Well, and then you get to play a corpse uh, throughout the rest of the film. <laughs> and I'll tell you something, that that was a favor because my employment on that film was for five weeks. And Don made sure, and it was an eight-week shoot, my appearance as the corpse in, in, the, in the trunk of the car happened in the eighth week. So Don kept me on the payroll for three weeks and just called me back to be the corpse in the trunk of the car. You know, for which at the time I was forever grateful because I had just gotten married and and my wife was pregnant. So you said that uh, you had to battle with typecasting. Did I read right that you were actually chased down the street because people were so mad at you being Scorpio? 
Oh, they didn't, they didn't chase me down the street, but I mean, but people would yell out at me and, and come up to me and quote Clint's lines about, do you feel lucky punk and, and stuff that the worst stuff that happened was a couple of times I got these strange calls and one was an actual death threat. And, and, and then another time, um, at the time I was with the William Morris agency that my agent called and said, you know, there's a, a journalist who'd like to interview you. And uh, do you want to do it at your home or in the office? And I said, I, I, I'd rather come up, come into the office. Thank God I said that because I, I got in there and uh, and and this guy was a creep. I mean, of the first magnitude. And all he was interested in doing is like, you know, because he was convinced. I mean, like a lot of people are, sadly that I was really this psychopathic person who enjoyed killing and torturing people. And, and he wanted to get off on it. And so I, I at one point I just, excuse me, I got to go to the bathroom. And I went out into uh, my, my agent's office and I said, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you, you get rid of that motherfucker and I'm going. <laughs> so that, that, it was hard. It, it really was hard because I was so disappointed. I thought I'd done a great job. And of course, being young and, and, and stupid and vain, I thought, oh, wow, this is my ticket to stardom and I'm, you know, and all of that stuff. And then to have that happen. And it turned out that it probably was the best thing that could ever have happened to me, Mike. You know, simply because I woke up, I kind of, you know, shook myself awake from the, you know, the Hollywood dream and, and, and became an actor again. Looking at your CV, I mean, you were just, in one show after another after another for so many years in the early 70s, it looks like you just didn't have a break. I mean, which is a good thing as an actor, I know, but it looks just like you were in, you know, Kung Fu and Ironside and The Rookies and just one after another for so many years. I know, I know. And, 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 and but the thing is, you, you, you forget that it's it, that those shows, it, it isn't like now where you've got all these fabulous cable shows on HBO and, 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 and Netflix and so forth. And with American playwrights being on, on these, these, these writing uh, staffs and, and, and really good. It was for the most part, it was really terrible writing. And, and for someone who, you know, I mean, I, I'm laughing now because when I came out of drama school, I thought I'm going to become a Shakespearean actor and, and things happened and I went the way I went. You know, only recently, am I, I, I'm, I'm now in my 70s, I'm now doing these Shakespearean plays, and I'm finally becoming the Shakespeare actor I've always wanted to be. But while I was doing those, those shows, I mean, of course, there were exceptions. There was a Kojak with Ruth Gordon that was brilliant, you know, and, and there, was a, there, there were some shows that were really lovely. But for the most part, it was really just trying to pay the rent. What was your experience like working on Hellraiser? And that was great. I mean, that that's, you know, there are, there are a number of shows like El Reyes or Liberace or that were just such a joy to do. And it was a joy because Clive Barker, you know, that was his first film. I mean, the guy was already a well-established uh, writer and, 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 and he had this, he had this series called, which he called the books of blood and the writing is superb. He's a wonderful writer. And he looks like this choir boy, you know, he sounds like one of the Beatles from, he is from Liverpool. Uh, I think, I think he actually, you know, he, he, he grew up on Penny Lane and really sweet guy, 
with this unbelievable imagination and which which took my breath away, you know, it, with, with, with the stuff that he came up with. I had a great time with that. I really just enjoyed that immensely. And and it's still to this day, like I, I did this um, this convention in, in London not too long ago. And my God, it's it's uh, it, the, the people who came up with their paraphernalia from Hellraiser. It was unbelievable. I was so surprised when I went back and started watching Deep Space Nine again recently um, because I missed it when it was out originally. I don't know what I was doing, but when I'm watching it, I'm just like, who is this Garrett character? He's really impressive. I'm really enjoying this. And then I had to look it up because you were unrecognizable. How much time did you spend in the makeup chair for that? I, a, a, a lot of time, man. I mean, a lot of time. But that's one of my favorite characters of all time. And that was maybe no character ever surprised me more than that. Because when I went out for that job, I, I, I originally went up for one of the, you know, the series regulars and, uh, and it came down to like, you know, several callbacks and, and, uh, you know, the three or three of us and, 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 uh, my friend Rene Aubert-Chinois got the, got the role rightfully so. And then when they called me back and they said, well, we have this one episode, this character for one episode, and he's a Cardassian and you're in a lot of makeup. And I thought, oh, God, I don't want to go in for this. I do not want to go up for this. And Irene said, no, no, go, go, see what happens. You know, Star Trek is this big thing now. And thank God I did, because it was doing that role changed my life. I mean, I, it, I became a recurring character. They paid me well, which then allowed me to like strike off on a whole new direction uh, in in directing, uh, you know, in the stage directing. I started directing plays, and that the playing Garrick and doing Deep Space Nine gave me the the, the time and the money support to to strike off in you know in in that direction. But but it was also the writing, the writing, the, for the most part, the writers were wonderful on that show. And so and they loved writing for Garrick. So they they basically gave me the, the, the most clever, the most witty dialogue. And they also created this character who was a mystery, who had a secret. And and as an actor, you always love to play those characters who have secrets and 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 I think viewers also love characters who have secrets. Yeah, no, you manage to keep people on edge for all those seasons. I mean, you were in thirty some episodes and thirty nine episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, but that was a joy to do too. That was really a lot of fun. And I know you ended up writing a Deep Space Nine book. Had you done much writing before that point? You know, I'd done some writing, but not like that. You know, and that came out of, uh, you know, one of one of the, the it, it came out of an actor's kind of trick, Mike. You know, you when when you, or at least a, one that I use, or a tool, I should say, not a trick. It's when I I, I get a role, and I really don't know where this character is from. It's from a really another part of the woods, and of course, being a Cardassian from outer space, I didn't know a Cardassian from a ham sandwich. So I start, I, I, I write a biography. I, I create a, 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 a biography for, for the character. And I got so engrossed in playing the role and writing this backstory that I, you know, I, I turned it into a book. 
obviously you've gone on to write your own uh, story, to write your autobiography. Did that lead to any other writing gigs for you? No, not really. And I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't looking for, you know, for any, you know, I mean, I just, I, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, I'm always writing something, but it's, it's mainly just for me. And, and I just put it in a drawer. And then, then sometimes, you know, it, I, it, it, it means more than just for me. Like the thing that I wrote, you know, the, the, the memoir that I wrote is that, that became kind of for my family, you know, and for my friends, probably more than that. It was for me trying to put together what had happened to me in my life. I mean, there were certain things, you know, I had a, you know, it was a rough childhood. I had a lot of, a lot of problems and, and, you know, like my father was killed in the second world war and my mother kind of, she had a terrible nervous breakdown and kind of went crazy. So there was a, there was a lot of disturbance, you know, in, in my early years and writing that book really helped to, uh, to put a lot of stuff together for me and and to put a lot of things at rest. I hate to use this word because I think it gets overused, but I think it's a courageous book. I really, and it's riveting too. Thank you for saying that. It took a long time writing and it took a long time writing not to make it sound nice. It, it took a long time writing to get it honest because I, you know, it, and it was the last year of, or the last several months of writing it that I really kind of found I mean, I found the truth of it. And, and so I, I just cut away everything that wasn't telling the story that I wanted to tell. You've been in so many things and uh, I'm not even thinking about your stage work, which I've known that you've done for so many years, but when it comes to your film and television appearances, what have been some of your favorite roles to play? You know, the two Don Siegel things. Absolutely. And there was like the, the, the Liberace. Unfortunately, the, it was a, a ABC film. I mean, I, I and that was that. I mean, where I got to actually wear his his real clothes and 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 his his jewelry and so forth. But that was that was a, that was such a pleasure to do. Um, I mean, the Hellraiser, of course. I mean, the, the Garrick. Those were probably the film highlights. I mean, there, there were others. I, I mentioned that Kojak where, you know, Ruth Gordon plays this fortune teller and I, I'm, I, I'm, I come to her and I'm this very disturbed young man. And, and it was, and Telly Savalas directed it. He got so involved with it that he went a week over and universal was pissed off at him that on the last day they, they, they shut off the electricity to the soundstage because he he was so into making this, and he did. It's a, it's a it's actually a beautiful episode. There have been occasional gems like that. For that, I'm grateful. You know, I mean, I, I really am grateful. And because besides that, I've, I've had, you know, my my theater life, and and there have been lots of stuff that I've done in the theater that have, you know, I just finished this past summer. I went to. Uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to a little Shakespeare outdoor Shakespeare festival, and I I played Prospero in The Tempest, which was uh, also I mean that was and that was like coming back, going coming back to 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 my to my roots because when I I, I I'm sure you know that I in 2004 I took a job at the University of Southern California to to start a new master of fine arts program, an actual conservatory actor training conservatory. And that, and that turned out to be a major job 
creating the program and then running it for, uh, you know, I, I ran it for 10 years and then, and then you passed it, passed it over to someone else. And, and now this is, this is my final year of, of teaching there. I'm going, I'm going back to acting and doing Prospero uh, in Wyoming was, was my return. That's what I see myself doing now uh, is unless the agents come up with something really wonderful. And I said, unless the character, you know, I'm talking about film or television, unless the character is really interesting, I'm, I, I'm interested in playing, you know, yeah, just getting a paycheck anymore. I, I'm perfectly happy just, just doing really good theater. The Liberace, that was amazing because I, at that point, I had only seen Liberace on talk shows, never really saw anything else. And your portrayal of him just really hit home. That was wonderful. That's work I'm so proud of because it, and there, and there were a couple of moments during, you know, when I finally saw the film where I couldn't tell the difference. You know, it was the lighting, it was the angle, obviously. But there were just a couple of images where, my God, I look just like him. I mean, I, and, and not just looking, I was behaving. I was, I was I, you know, like channeling him, which was, which, which was exciting. You were in one of my favorites of the new Twilight Zones, that Profiles in Silver, I think it was. That's one of those gems that I, that, that I mentioned earlier. Absolutely. A terrific script, a, a wonderful idea. Uh, and you know, and and it, and it was, and 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 a very touching story too. What I mean, what if that's which is what you know, what, well, all that science fiction is pretty much is. But it was, it was, it was a lovely, it was a lovely show. Are you currently in rehearsals for anything now, or are you just pretty much fully concentrating on the the teaching? I go into rehearsal. I, I've got an interesting gig. Uh, a friend of mine, a, a wonderful English director. Uh, Nancy Meckler is, um, she's actually American, but she, she, she works in England. She's had a lot of success, uh, as a stage director there. She was asked by the LA Philharmonic to come up with a version of Midsummer Night's Dream to do at Disney Hall with the LA Phil using Felix Mendelssohn's music that he wrote for the Midsummer Night's Dream. So I'm going to play Oberon. Uh, and, and that, and that happens in early November. And it, what the, 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 the idea of playing in Disney Hall, which is, this, and the idea of, of acting with a symphony orchestra in that space, uh, doing Shakespeare is, is pretty exciting. Well, that's terrific. I am so glad that uh, you are actually now finally able to do Shakespeare again. <laughs> <laughs> me, me too. Me too. Wow, Andy, this has been terrific. Thank you so much for your time tonight. You're very welcome, Mike. It was a pleasure. We are back and we are talking about Charlie Varick. The one thing I didn't touch on earlier when we were having our conversation was the way that this was adapted for the screen. It was adapted uh, by Howard Rodman, not the Howard Rodman that's been on this show before, but actually his father. 
Uh, he took the first pass at it, as far as I understand, and then I think there was a second draft that was by Dean Resner. And they really did a great job adapting The Looters by John Reese. And The Looters was a nice book, very solid book, but is very different from what we ended up getting in Charlie Varick the movie. Charlie Varick is there. All the characters are pretty much there. But do you guys remember those deputies that we see at the beginning of the film, especially the one who gets shot and the guys who are like figuring out the license plate and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff? Mm-hmm. They are major characters in the book. Major characters. There's <laughs> there's one deputy whose last name is Steele, and he goes by the name of Stainless Steel, and we learn this whole thing about him and about his mother and about the sheriff of the town and the way that the sheriff kind of has the hots for the mother, but then also has the hots for the widow of a of the deputy who was killed. So there's this whole other story going on in this. You know, we get to learn about the sketch artist who falls in love with Stainless, and we get to find out how they kind of end up thwarting Molly, because Charlie Varick dies in the book. He gets his face stomped. He basically gets curb stomped by Molly. And so it looks like Molly is also going to kill this woman who is the sketch artist that talks to Stainless when he's in the hospital because he gets a piece of uh, shrapnel or something bounced off of him. So, yeah, he there's this whole other thing going on. So it's really amazing to see what they took from the looters and made into Charlie Varick because it is a wild ride. And obviously I'm glad that Charlie Varick lived and I'm glad that he survives. <laughs> there's a lot of interesting stuff though. And it's a neat too, because there's a real hatred going on between the John Vernon character and the Joe Don Baker character where he just, when people talk about Molly, his skin crawls and he just does not like that guy at all. So it's funny that the first time we see John Vernon in Charlie Varick, he basically just picks up the phone and calls Molly. So like, yep, I need you to do this job for me. And they're really on the same side when they aren't necessarily, you know, they, they both work for the mob in the book, but they really like, there's a lot of tension there. And that kind of, uh, I won't say latent racism that you brought up before where he's talking about the, the bagel muncher. You kind of get a little bit of it too, where he hates, he hates pretty much everybody who's not white, but he hates Sicilians. And he they goes into great lengths of how he hates these greasy Sicilians that he has to work for with these mobsters and just how much he dislikes them. And you kind of get that. Like when he says to, uh, to the bank manager, like, you don't know how these people are, Harold. And it's like, okay, the, the, what do you mean these people, right? Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but there's this whole thing of him hating Sicilians and that he basically was kind of get got his hand caught in the cookie jar. He ends up working for these mob guys, and but how much he dislikes them. So, yeah, major, major difference. I, I have to say I really like the book, but it is totally like a almost like reading a whole other thing at the end of the day i'm um, look i haven't read the book and it's uh, if you recommend it then it's certainly something i'd seek out but i think we would have ended up with a different dynamic well obviously we would have ended up with a different dynamic but uh, i like the fact that 
I mean, you couldn't avoid having the law and, you know, William Charlotte and the police, but they're pretty much almost seen as inefficient, comedic, not if not quite Keystone Cop type characters. Like, for instance, the moment where they storm uh, Varric's trailer. But uh, the focus is purely on the chase between Molly and Varric, between one side of the bad, bad guys and the good, bad guys, as I referred to them at the start of the show. And if we would have had to have taken time away from that to go explore the background of the policeman's characters, then it would have made that other story far less tense in my mind. But I'll, maybe I'll sort of reserve that final judgment until I've uh, had a chance to read the book. Um, you also sort of brought up there, Mike, about you know the fact that you were glad, as I certainly was, that Charlie survives and you know, wins in the end of this film. But I got into this conversation a few years back on um, the GGTMC Facebook page, and I just watched Sorcerer, the ending of that. Am I allowed to give a spoiler for a film we're not discussing? Well, we already talked about Sorcerer. So if you haven't seen Sorcerer, go watch it, and then you can listen to that episode, and then come back and you can listen to the rest of this <laughs> Good, episode. Thanks. So I'd gone and pointed out that I was not a fan of the closing minute or two of Sorcerer because it's pretty much assumed. You don't see it explicitly, but we know that Roy Scheider is going to get killed by the mob who've just gone and tracked him down. You know, like in uh, the, the film, the, the two films have in common the, a character who's on the run from the mafia. And it, basically, we, we go and see that Roy Scheider has gone through this trial by ordeal, trial by fire, and um, then to finally see that, you know, just when he thinks he's safe and just when he thinks, well, he's lost a lot, but, you know, at least his life is saved. And then the mafia comes back in and says, hey, remember us from the beginning of the film? You've got to square with us. And I said on the group how, you know, I, that ending upset me. And they said, well, no, man, it's a perfect ending because just because, you know, he's received some personal redemption doesn't mean that he's redeemed in the eyes of the people who he did wrong at the beginning of the film. And so that's quite appropriate. And I, really, after the first time I watched Charlie Varick and I thought about this ending, I thought, well, yeah, well, that's the ending that I want. It's not to say that, you know, I hate sad endings or unhappy endings or whatever but it just seemed to me that in sorcerer uh, there was a level of humanity that the roy scheider character had uh, just like you know we see that even though he's very calculating we never know what's in his mind but there's some level of humanity in walter matthau's character uh, I, I just far preferred the ending in that and it just sort of reminded me of what i'd seen in sorcerer and how much that disappointed me Again, me three. I'm so glad. I mean, I do want to read the book, though, because that sounds it sounds incredible. But the thing I liked about this film is that, you know, with your first viewing, you see enough ugliness and enough violence to where you're not really guaranteed that Charlie will make it. You know, so that's like part of the reason like that last 10 minutes is tense is that, I mean, he's smart, but Molly, I mean, Molly's scary <laughs> and he's tenacious. And uh, so you, you, there's almost that tension of like, oh, God, you know, because that's when you watch a film and you know for sure the hero is not going to die. You know, that does kind of take away a little bit of the mystery and a little bit of tension, but it makes it all the more rewarding when you see, OK, Charlie does win in the end and the way that he does it is just so great and it's 
it's brilliant and it kind of ties a lot of stuff together right down to like yeah i love the detail when charlie's like going to burn some of the money which i'm assuming is Harmon's uh half third, third yeah oh, excuse me <laughs> jimmy dick <laughs> You see, like, Molly's cowboy hat on the ground. Yeah, it's it's such a, like, just a little detail that I love. So, um, you know, for me, there's some films I love that do have kind of a bleak ending. In this case, I'm, I think the ending's perfect. And I think it's handled in a way that didn't feel, like, hackneyed or, you know, expected or cheesy or anything. It was uh, just like everything else, just so smart. This is an intelligent, intelligent movie. I think it was about two years ago that I got to see for the first time the original director's vision for the ending of Little Shop of Horrors is in the mid-'80s musical version with uh, Rick Moranis and Ellen Green. And in that version, the the plant wins, and Rick Moranis dies, and Ellen Green dies. And... (sighs) You know, uh, Frank Oz, that was the version that he wanted in the studio, said, no, give us a happy or maybe a wink and a nod type of ending that maybe it's not quite the ending. And I, I discussed this with, uh, you know, my my partners and friends in the See Here podcast, and we sort of came to the conclusion, yeah, this was definitely one case where we deserved that happy ending. All those characters deserved that happy ending. They'd been through so much harrowing stuff. And, you know, despite what happens in the play and in the original version of of uh, the film, you know, Audrey too deserves to fuck to get blown up. So, um, yeah, another example of why well, I think the director, I think to this day, Frank Oz doesn't like the cinematic version that got released at the time. But, yeah, I think that's one case where he got it wrong. Sometimes you need that happy ending. Your, your characters deserve that happy ending. And certainly, I think Charlie Varick, you can debate you know, from a, a morality place. Does he deserve, does he not deserve? But I think at least from a stance that he's been through a hell of a lot. And, um, yeah, I think he deserves it. Well, it's also nice that it's Walter Matthau, so we don't know if he's going to make it out or not. You know, if this is Tom Cruise, this is Brad Pitt, this is Paul Newman, you know, the traditionally ha- handsome guys, you know, cool hand Luke notwithstanding, the traditionally, traditionally handsome guys are the ones that tend to make it out. The Walter Matthaus tend to be the guys who plan on retiring to Arizona and manage to get shot the day before retirement. It's, it's probably the only time, I don't know, that you're going to compare someone like Charlie Varick to Columbo. But cause like, Charlie Varick is never, it's never in doubt that he's a smart guy. We just never know what it is that he's got in the back of his mind but like when you watch a show like Columbo and Peter Falk plays him so so brilliantly I know that you're a big fan Mike the Columbo character he's always held in contempt and he's always dismissed by whoever's gone and done the murder I mean we know right from the outset it's always just this cat and mouse game but we the audience know that oh yeah Columbo's going to get his man or his woman in the end because he's doing things piecemeal and we never know what's going on in his mind uh, so yeah, while I was sort of like putting together my thoughts for this film, I thought, yeah, there's that sort of comparison between Varric and Columba. I mean, that, you know, Columba's not never playing a game of chess exactly, but he's never letting on what he really is musing on in his mind. And I thought that that was an interesting comparison between those characters. Plus the fact that uh, I, I think in his way, you know, Peter Falk as a detective, you know, with a sloppy coat, 
uh, you know, not the traditionally handsome looking guy like, like Walter Matthau was also not the traditionally handsome lead man, make them both completely believable. I tell you, that's the only thing this film's missing is the Cassavetti stable of character actors. That would have, because <laughs> mm. there's so many great character actors here. Imagine, you know, Gazzara and, and Falk here, but that's an excellent point. I'm sorry, Maurice, my, my brain, you mentioned Peter Falk. My brain always goes to like woman, woman under the influence. Cause again, oh, I, I my, like my your, favorite Cassavetti film. Oh, it's like, it's my second. My first favorite is killing of a Chinese bookie. God, this is this whole era was just so great it's it, uh you know and not, i i'm not into nostalgia you know i'm not telling anybody get off my lawn or anything, <laughs> <laughs> anything like that at least not yet but um but it's like i do I, I would like to see people kind of you can't emulate the past don't do that it's a fallacy uh but learn from it you know go back and watch these movies and and figure out why they worked and clicked and apply that to new two new movies and um you know that we could be cooking with some dynamite again it's funny i was just talking with a screenwriter john huff and he was saying that his entire career is basically owed to studying the script for dirty harry he just he and his writing partner l ford neal just studied that script learned where the beats were in that script because they just felt that that really you know and he said no you could probably do that with any script but we chose dirty harry but dirty harry yeah it's a really really tight script and having a director like don siegel in the directing chair on that one was a perfect match and you mentioned the you know the regulars from cassavetti's you know, it's so nice to see the regulars in a Don Siegel film as well, because he had kind of his core group that he would work with over and over again. And one of those people, you know, you mentioned Lalo Schifrin earlier, they, that was his guy. Like so many of the Siegel films were scored by Schifrin. You know, so many times you'll see these faces popping up in one Siegel film or another. And Don Siegel, a lot of people will just point to like, Dirty Harry and some of the you know the uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, some of these movies, but he had such an amazing career, and I think even kind of like his misfires are always interesting. Not that he had a whole lot of misfires to me. So many of his movies are ones that I will go back and watch over and over and over again. One of the movies that I don't hear a whole lot of people talk about is Telephone. I love. Telephone. That is my favorite Charles Bronson film. And it's not necessarily that I think of it as a Charles Bronson film. It's not necessarily that I think of it as a Donald Pleasance film. It's that I think of it as a Donald Siegel film. And he just did so much great work. And he was doing it with Clint Eastwood. I love Coogan's Bluff almost as much as I love Dirty Harry. But he was able to do all of these great movies and just it was he had such a great run of just solid cinema especially throughout the 70s but also into the 60s as well the films that you mentioned there mike like uh coogan's bluff and telephone are certainly on my seagull list of shame i really had not seen as many of his films as i thought i had like and, and so um you know the shooters and coogan's bluff you know just yeah on the list of shame but certainly a thing that I was trying to think about was there a common link between at least the films that I had seen? I mean, besides apart from being tough action films. And so films like Right in Cell Block 11, uh, Madigan, 
uh, you mentioned before, uh, Dirty Harry and Charlie Varick, they all seem to have film, uh, they all seem to have a theme of uh, feeling sympathy for the underdog, um, uh, the, the, basically uh, giving a middle finger to authority, whichever, in whichever case it might be. Uh, right in cell block 11, you've got you know, inmates in a prison who are, um, uh, who are kept in conditions that they don't see right. They go and uh, kidnap and torture some guards to negotiate for better living conditions. So, you know, that's – and we, we feel – I mean, there's a schism between some of the prisoners and, and others, but ostensibly I think for the um, – they, they give us like at least a couple of the sympathetic uh, prisoner characters and we sort of feel like, okay, there's something – uh, in in their world, yeah, they, they've got a legitimate complaint, and then it ends up being an indictment on authority and an indictment on the media. Uh, Madigan, which I sort of see as like a prototype for what's to come with Dirty Harry, um, and like, his, his character is never painted uh, in a flattering manner. You know, Madigan is the, you know this tough guy, but he does it his own way, and he does some things which you know are, are less than savoury, but he's not as bad as the genuine bad guy. In that film, and you know, Dirty Harry, well, that needs no explanation. You know, Clint Eastwood's character giving the finger to useless uh, authority, once again played by John Vernon as uh, the mayor. And uh, uh, Varric, well, what we've been speaking for the last hour and a half about. In those other films that you mentioned, Mike, uh, is there a similar sort of theme of uh, giving the finger to authority? Is that a common thing through a lot of Don Siegel's uh, filmography? Well, even when I think of Telephone, I mean, the whole idea of that is there's a couple, a couple ways that the finger is be, being given to authority. One of them is the uh, way that Donald Pleasance doesn't like that there's this kind of thaw that's happening with the Russian leadership. So he steals these code words and absconds to the United States and basically starts painting his name across the United States with all of these secret agents that he is turning and having them do these suicide missions. And uh, they send Charles Bronson over to neutralize that. And they have, um, I'm forgetting the actress's name, as uh, the American version of Charles Bronson. And she's supposed to neutralize Bronson after Bronson neutralizes uh, Donald Pleasance. And then at the end, it's basically like, well, fuck you. We fell in love. So we're just going to go on our own way. And so they just they're like, if you come after us, we will now start to trigger all of these agents. So you can either leave us alone or you can have a whole bunch of murder and mayhem on your hands across the United States. So, yeah, that's definitely a big old finger to the status quo. That's definitely a film I'm going to have to track down. I've long been aware of it, but yeah, never got around to seeing that. No, until recently, I didn't even realize it was a Seagull film. If you haven't seen the lineup from 1958 with Eli Wallach, I have. I love that movie. And that great gay relationship that is in that movie is fantastic. Would you say that the Eli Wallach character in that film is sort of a prototype for Molly? I can see that, yeah. Dancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his, yeah. That's the character. He's he's a killer, a sociopath, and yeah, a really nasty piece of work who just is there to get the job done. Has no regard for whatever whatever the cost is to anyone else. He's just got his mission, and uh, he, he's been called in to do a job, and he's just going to do it. And yeah, absolutely. I, oh, Eli Eli Wallach. I mean, I remember him in uh, you know films like The Deep. And um, I guess, you know, there's a good, the bad, and the ugly. But, I mean, I, he was always like a face that I 
ostensibly felt some level of sympathy for. And then watching him in this, you thought, oh my goodness, you're a, you're a bad motherfucker. I need to see it. It, it hits me. I'm like you, Morris. There's a lot of sequel films I need to see. Like I have some gaps. I'm actually familiar with Telephone, but I've never seen it. I feel like I grew up around it though, because my mother was a huge Charles Bronson fan and probably still is. But to the point where like our photo album, like one of my childhood era photo albums, there's a huge like glossy photo of Charles Bronson next to like pictures of me opening presents for Christmas. Like, I'm like four years old. So it's like Charles Bronson, little Heather. A Charles Bronson <laughs> yeah, Christmas. So, so I'm sure she watched it. So that one was in my periphery um, as, a, as a kid, but I don't remember watching it. Uh, but yeah, there's there's so much. I mean, there's I've, I've seen, you know, a lot of the, the bigger titles of his filmography. But, um, you know, Siegel, you know, Siegel, when directors are that good, I think it's it's a good point to, like, check out the deeper cuts. I mean, even if they're not great, there's always going to be something interesting going on. These are Mavericks. We are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. In a place outside time lies a mystical realm of sound and vision. A wondrous civilization. Where good and evil struggle to possess the dark crystal. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the Dark Crystal. But before that, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Morris and Heather. Morris, what's the haps in Melbourne these days? Bro? Well, um, I'm looking about for a new band. I left my a cappella group at the end of last year. So uh, any listeners to the projection booth who might be residing in Melbourne, if you're a jazz guitar player and you want to uh, set down some uh, samba or some Latin rhythms, give me a call. Um, apart from that, uh, still playing along with the Love That Album podcast and the See Here podcast. Uh, we're going to be uh, getting together for See Here in a couple of weeks to be talking about a documentary on uh, Harry Nilsson called Who Is Harry Nilsson and Why Is Everybody Talking About Him? And uh, no doubt the point will be uh, brought up in that. So uh, having a lot of fun, really looking forward to uh, covering that on the show. So, uh, yeah, that's my lot at the moment. Not enough of Altman's Popeye in that movie. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think any mention would be uh, too much. <laughs> <laughs> but at least they get to talk about Skidoo. I was very happy when he shows up in Skidoo. And, uh, I, I, until until listening to uh, Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal podcast, I didn't even know about the existence of Skidoo. I've got to track that down. Oh, yes, oh. you do. Yeah, yes, it's you a do. moral... This is a moral matter. You must see Skidoo. It is. I have, I have, I have horrified people with being like, "Watch this." So they're like, "What the? 
what? <laughs> Jackie Gleason and acid. Yes. <laughs> Skidoo is a gift. And that documentary is fantastic. I can't wait to, to see what you guys, uh, to hear that discussion of it. I love Harry Nielsen. We'll have a lot of fun with it. No doubt. I'm, I'm sure. And Heather, how goes your Mondo world? Oh, uh, Mondo-rific. Uh, <laughs> since the last time I've been on, um, I got to write about a previously lost Doris Wishman film entitled The Prince and the Nature Girl, as well as a tribute to the late, great James Hendricks, who's best known for playing Commander USA uh, for all of us children of the uh, of the 80s that got our monster movie fix uh, via USA Network. Uh Hendrix was amazing. Uh, as far as the Encyclopedia, a Bizarro Film, Volume 1, uh, which is your thrilling tome to all things weird and wondrous in cinema, um, we're kind of in the fun post-production. Uh, my writing partner, uh, the great John Skip, as well as our brilliant illustrator, Paula Handback, and myself, we're working on finish, like finishing up the visual elements to hopefully match the literary. So, Because um, we want it, we've worked hard on the words, we want the visuals to look good. For all of that, anybody out there curious about the book and more uh you can follow me on twitter facebook and my own site mondoheather.com well thank you so much guys for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode you also find links over to itunes where you can rate and review the show as well as to patreon where you can make a donation to the show I put out a little call to the Patreon folks uh, just before I started recording this episode. We're going to do another Ego Fest coming up pretty soon. It's going to be a short one. And we'll, I won't invite you back, Heather, for like a five-hour ordeal like we did last time. So it might just be me and a microphone sitting in a dark room someplace, uh, probably drinking you know, like I usually do, and just recording that. But So yeah, if you've got questions, critiques, comments, any of that kind of stuff, just send them on over. And I will be happy to address any of those on this uh, hopefully briefer EgoFest. I think we're up to EgoFest number six. So, yeah, feel free to do that, Mike, at projection-boot.com. So just remember, every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.